Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and a very warm welcome to St. Paul's Cathedral for the fourth in our series of Conversations Under the Dome, where we've been speaking to several people in the public eye whose work is creative, and we've been reflecting on the connection between divine creativity and human creativity remembering the interpretation which Dorothy L. Sayers gave to the verse from the book of Genesis which says that we're made in the image of God. And Sayers suggested that to be made in the image of God meant that we were most like God when we were being creative. And that's been one of the themes that's run through the conversations that we've been having on these Sunday evenings in Easter. And it's an enormous pleasure for all of us here this evening and everybody in the cathedral community to be able to welcome the great detective novelist P.D. James, Baroness James of Holland Park, who began her career in detective fiction in 1962 with her first novel, Cover Her Face, and her series of the Adam Dalgleish mysteries uh, have flowed from that first novel. Many of them have been made into TV series, and some of her other novels too, which are outside of that detective genre, including the novel The Children of Men, has even been made into a great uh, feature film. Baroness James is patron of the Prayer Book Society, so it's fitting for us to start with prayer and then a reading from scripture, which Lady James has chosen for us this evening. Thank you. Hmm. Let us pray. God our Father, you never cease the work you have begun and prosper with your blessing all human creativity. Make us wise and faithful stewards of your gifts that we may serve the common good, maintain the fabric of the world, and seek that justice where all may share the good things you pour upon us. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. A reading from the Gospel according to St. Luke. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, 
and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him, and passed by the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again I will repay thee. Which now of these three, thinkest thou, was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. Lady James, you have a particular affinity with Jesus' use of the parables in his teaching ministry. What attracts you in particular to the parables? Well, I think they are quite remarkable stories. And uh, the more you read them, the more you understand them, and sometimes the deeper of the message. I can remember originally feeling that the Good Samaritan was just about helping people in need, and then again sort of having um, the confidence to leave the injured man there and say you will be back, and the innkeeper believe that you will be back. And then, and I should have known this as a child, but I didn't know it as a child, that the Levi who passed on the other side was almost certainly making his way to Jerusalem to take part in the holy ceremonies. And therefore, he could not enter the temple if he had come in contact with blood. So that was the most important thing. And then the parable meant so much more to me because it meant that even our religious duties must come secondary to meeting the need of another human being. When we see that need, we should meet it and not have excuses saying we were going to church or whatever. And they are extraordinarily rich. And it's the same with the parable of the, the, the prodigal son, that you feel at first that the elder brother had something to complain about. He'd been thoroughly good, he wasn't greeted with, he didn't get fatted calves slain for him. Probably he, was, he felt he was taken for granted. And then came this prodigal son who behaved quite disgracefully and all this fuss was being made. And then we read the parable and the father says, son, all that I have is yours. In other words, the prodigal wasn't going to get the money back. Everything was going to the good one. And it seemed to me to say that out of one's own privileges, out of all the luck one's had and the good fortune one's had, surely it's one needn't grudge other people who have less what they do have. So that in fact the complexity of the parable in terms of the art of storytelling, the complexity of the parable allows us to keep revisiting yes. the parables and discover more 
in them than indeed perhaps it, when we last looked. And at indeed, it does. And they are beautiful. They are so. Well, I mean, they are short, but they're so. The, the language is so good. It's so simple, and so true, and so real. It's not at all surprising that they've remained in the hearts and minds, and not only of Christians, but people generally know about the prodigal son. Do you think that we? in the church make too many demands on people when we expect them to say the creed at every one of our services. There's this expectation that a highly complicated list of doctrines can trip off the tongue with great simplicity. <laughs> I, I so agree with you there, Canon Michael, I really do. Um, and it sort of dawned on me, when gradually thinking about these things, that we owe the creed of faith to the Nicaea conference, or it wasn't called a conference, what was it called? A council. council. Um, and this was composed of men, of human beings, and they each had an agenda. They each, if they weren't powerful themselves, had a very powerful bishop behind them. And present was the emperor, and the emperor had decided that Christianity was going to be the religion of the empire. And he said, then you, all your quarreling bishops, arguing about, make up your minds and tell us what we're supposed to believe. And we'll believe it. We'll tell everybody in the empire, this is what you believe. But half of you think that Jesus wasn't divine, and the rest of you think that he was divine. And make up, well, what is it? Is he a, a holy man? Or is he really the son of God, you know? Born of his father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. That's Nicaea. Yes. And I have a rather sympathy with the opposition, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it, I think it is a problem. You just wonder how many people are crossing their fingers, really. <laughs> and um, one of my great heroes in the church uh, was the former Bishop of Durham, David Jenkins, yes. who once said religion is a very bad advertisement for God. And when one listens to the sorts of particularly controversies that come from religious extremism, mm. but also more generally uh, the, uh, the antipathy that people have for some of the debates that we're currently having, yes. does that description of Jenkins resonate with you at all? Oh, I think it does with many of us. And I think that in ordinary life we look at our friends and we are not, well, we are interested to see that the ones who do most good are not necessarily the ones who call themselves Christian. I think they would be recognized by God as being Christians, and Christ made that plain. It is what we do, not what we say. But that's rather sad. I think, too, that the church and the church's quarrels and the church's arguments and the squabbles and the, often the lack of charity between the different members of the church. It's hardly an advertisement for a, a loving God, and I think it must grieve him. Mm. And Dorothy L. Sayers, going back to her for a moment, once wrote to the Archbishop of Canterbury, turning down the offer of an honorary doctorate in theology, yes. saying that she <clears throat> was concerned that maybe she wasn't a very convincing kind of Christian, but was more in love with an intellectual pattern. And one can resonate to a certain extent with that, but 
at the same time one wonders how sustainable that is. Yes, well, she said herself that where religion was concerned, she had never felt any emotion. It was a purely intellectual assent to the theology. She believed it and it was there and she believed it with her mind. She didn't feel it in any way. Um, and I, that is, I think, a little strange because most of us hope that there's a mixture of both. Mm. And certainly many religious experiences are deeply moving and we do feel them very deeply. But um, she said that and I often wondered though that um, she, she did have an illegitimate son and that was a very sad story altogether and she kept it absolutely secret and I think quite reasonably she was afraid that it could come out. It was one of those secrets that could come out any time and the church would be harmed. I don't think she minded so much about being harmed herself but she thought I will, if I accept this great honor from the church and that comes out, the church is going to be made to look a little ridiculous or in some way harmed. Yes. I think that may have been partly the motive. Yes, I think that's part of the theory. Although she, in the same letter to the Archbishop, she says, of course, I realize that a doctorate in theology isn't necessarily a certificate in sanctity. <laughs> but she said she would prefer a doctorate in letters because she'd served literature uh, well, throughout she did. her career. She did serve literature. But, of course, she was very interesting theologically, wasn't she, in the attempt, which we'll probably speak about a little later maybe, um, to try to understand the doctrine of the Trinity mm. in terms yes. of creativity. Yes, no, I, I'd, lo I'd love us to talk more about that. Um, as a Durham graduate, I'm glad to say that the only university that ever gave her a doctorate in letters was Durham in 1950, quite right too. Yes. Um, but Lady James, uh, I mentioned earlier uh, your lay patron of the Prayer Book Society mm -hmm. and the Book of Common Prayer has great resonance uh, for many Christians, particularly through its language. That's often the yes. thing we refer to when we express our admiration for mm -hmm. the prayer book. Is that where you find your resonance in the prayer book, or is there more to the prayer book than merely its language? I think there is more. There's a great deal of history. Of course, I came to it very, very young. In fact, um, I, I came to church going very young and was a great deal more faithful when I was young. I was taken in my mother's arms because I was born in Oxford and they loved church music. They loved the music of the chapels. And so I was carried in my mother's arms when I was practically newborn. And I never cried. They, I think they sat at the back and the idea of you must go out with the baby but I obviously liked the music and I liked the sound of the voices. And then, of course, when I got older, um, then I, I got to the age when I found the sermons very, very boring and they were very long in those days. So I loved just dipping into the prayer book and I loved these wonderful rubrics, especially the one in the Holy Communion service, which says that in time of plague, when no one in the community will take communion with a sick person for fear of infection. And of course the infection will be certain that the priest only should take it. And I had this picture, you know, of the village deserted, 
the plague there, and this poor dying man on his own, and the priest carrying the sacred vessels with a cloth over them, through a, usually through a storm, in my mind, it was, and, and, doing, I could, and it's, it's the same with the prayers at sea. I mean, it is a, it is a book for a country which is um, agricultural and seafaring, and the wonderful prayers for aid at sea, which get more and more sort of uh, pleading as the ship is obviously going to sink. And then when it is obviously going to sink and is sinking, everybody gets together to say the Lord's Prayer. But um, I would visualize that ship and the terrible danger it was in. So, um, you know, apart from reading sort of uh, the rest of it, where many bits from the Bible, um, I had a great deal of, uh, I suppose, in, not intellectual, but emotional stimulation. I think it helped make me a writer. And I can remember the churches too. The, at La we were in Ludlow, although I was born in Oxford, the wonderful St. Lawrence's Church, and then a little one we went to occasionally by a bridge over the team. And they had a stove, a coke stove. And in winter, when the wind changed, it would flare. It was just like Whitson, the flames of Whitson. And I can remember that uh, very, very clearly, as if I was sitting down there with that six-year-old, five-year-old. We talked um, earlier about how this series uh, is encouraging us to think about the relationship between human and divine creativity. And we're going to listen to uh, a piece of music now from Haydn's creation, Lovely. which uh, is indeed the scriptural passage that I referred to from the book of Genesis, yes. and then of course uh, part of John Milton's poetry from Paradise Lost, yes. which was set to music uh, by Haydn in this great work, In Native Worth, from Haydn's creation. Thank you, Richard and Greg. <coughs> Lady James, Dorothy L. Sayers, like you, was born in Oxford, like you, Sayers, was a detective novelist. She cared for her husband during various bouts of ill health, which was an experience that you had with your husband uh, through the trauma of war. And also, Sayers became someone who spoke openly about faith and God in a popular way that resonated with people uh, who wanted to hear about God aside from the professional theologians of the church. There are lots of similarities. You've occasionally been described as the Dorothy L. Sayers of the 21st century. <laughs> Is that something that you like or dislike? Well, in a sense, I like it because I so admire her as a writer. And I think she did a very great deal to make the detective story respectable from a literary point of view. But I really, I can't match her. I, I don't think there's any comparison when it comes really to speaking for religion. Um, she did this, she was an amateur theologian and um, she made it her business, particularly during the war, um, to be an advocate for Christianity. She cared. And I think that my faith is much too uncertain, is so much a question of still seeking. Um, I really don't feel that I could actually 
to any extent, set myself up as somebody, you know, who can, as it were, um, explain the Christian faith as she attempted to do, um, and, and did very convincingly. And she helped very many people who wrote to her with problems. And she had, um, she said something which I think is really rather funny, because she was talking about people's wrong ideas of religion. And she said, if, you, if she said to people, what is your understanding of God? They would say, well, he's like some great dictator. He creates. You mustn't offend him. He's very fierce. He does give things sometimes, but with a great deal of favoritism. And what about the son? Oh, well, he's much more friendly to human beings, but he has very good standing with the father. So if you want anything done, apply to him first. And then, then there's the spirit. And then they said, well, it couldn't make head or tail of the spirit. It didn't understand it. And anyway, he's very late on the scene. He doesn't arrive for Pentecost. And he's pretty incomprehensible. Um, and there is a sin against the Holy Ghost, which if you commit, you're damned everlastingly. But nobody knows what it is. <laughs> so in other words, Dorothy L. says, as far as you're concerned, is the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, and the Spirit incomprehensible. And they said, yes. <laughs> so she, you know, she had the light touch as well as being very serious. But she took on the theology of the doctrine of the Holy Trinity in her yes, classic yes, work of uh, popular theology, The Mind of the Maker, yes. in 1941, where she related the doctrine of the Holy Trinity to the creative art mm. of a writer. Yes, she did. So, and she, she, she said that God the Father was the whole work before it was even commenced, in its entirety, he saw the whole thing. Then the, the son was the workman, the person who did the work, the person who did the writing, I suppose. And then the Holy Spirit was the way in which the work was received in the minds and souls of the people who came in touch with it. Um, and many, many people found that, I think, very true and also very helpful. And I have one reservation, it's a purely personal one. It seemed to me that God the Father is in the original creative idea. Every writer has that moment when you suddenly have an idea, it's an inspiration, and you know that the book is going to be written, however long it takes, because of that original idea. And that seems to me very much like God, the originator of all creation, really, himself the supreme creator. She said that in relation to God the Father being the idea, she said it means that the writer can say, my book is finished, I have only now to write it. Do you see when you're writing a novel the whole thing complete in your subconscious, do you no. think, or not? No, it's much more working your way forward with care, and I suppose if we're thinking of a Christian way, we would say with, with, with prayer. But writing, you have the original idea, and then, and nearly always, that is the place. It happened here, that's the feeling I have. 
And then, of course, you have the characters, which is the most important part. And the puzzle has to be there. The detective has to be brought in. Um, bit by bit, it grows. It's, it's really rather like a plant. It does grow. And it requires a great deal of work and a great many notebooks where ideas are put down and sometimes rejected. I don't think the divine creation was a bit like that. I think that <laughs> it was perfect full time. <laughs> you, you, you reminded us earlier that Dorothy L. Sayers made the detective novel respectable. Yes. And one of the ways that she did that was to allow her characters to develop yes. so that Lord Peter Whimsey yes. is a very different character mm. in her final novel in uh, 1937 from what he was in 1923 when she wrote her first Peter Whimsey novel. Do you, does Adam Dalgleish develop as a character over the decades? He doesn't develop so spectacularly as Lord Peter. Um, Lord Peter was a sort of Bertie Wooster, silly young man about town, wasn't he? And his speech was very, very silly, really, very childish and not terribly funny. And by the time we meet him in Gordy Night, he's been attending a service in the cathedral and is having a rather learned conversation with the master of all souls. Um, he's quite a different character. He did change. I think she rather fell in love with him and made him the kind of man that she would like to have married, the perfect man, and strong and very masculine and able to subdue horses and goodness knows what, but at the same time an intellectual mm. and interested in religion. She was very cross if people tried to understand her through her characters. Yes. She didn't like people to think that if she made Harriet Vane or Peter yes. Whimsey believe such and such a thing, that that automatically meant that that's what she thought. And I think she was quite right to resent that. I dislike that too intensely. Um, there was a lot in, she had a lot in common, of course, with her creation, with Harriet Vane. Harriet Vane wrote detective stories. Um, what else was in common? Well, I can't think of much else, but I think they were alike. There's a, a slight bossiness about Harriet Vane. <laughs> I don't know whether you as a male reader feel that. There is a slight bossiness, and of course, Dorothy was extraordinarily pugnacious. Mm. And I, I admire her tremendously because I, I think she was such a strong person. But, um, no, it's, it's quite maddening when people say, you've drawn yourself. I'm, I'm nowhere in my books because I haven't got a strong female character anyway. But so that's, that she, helps me. She was criticised once for allowing Lord Peter Whimsey to drink port. To drink because port. she thought that yes, she was told that if if she was writing about popular theology, she shouldn't have a character who drank, and she said it was absurd to believe that she was a drinker because yeah. Lord Peter Whimsey was. She says, in fact, I can't bear port; it gives me indigestion. I, I, I know it's it's ludicrous. I remember being asked to do a talk about detective fiction. Basically, I think it was in Norwich Cathedral. And the first question was, why didn't you make Adam Dalgleish a Christian? Mm. And I said, well, because he isn't. Mm. He's a reverent agnostic. 
He is the son of a priest, and he in many ways observes the, pre the church's year, and he he goes to church and occasionally, mm -hmm. and um, and I think he has he has a, a, a real love of the Church of England, mm. but he's, he wouldn't call himself a Christian. Mm. And I'm not writing in order to convert people to anything. Indeed. And, and that reminds me of, of um, something that we've talked about before, which is that Sayers is talking about theology at a time when quite a large number of significant mm. lay Anglicans mm. were likewise doing so. Yes, C.S. Lewis, C.S. Eliot in the Inklings group, yes. uh, Lewis. But that's not the case now. No. And, and do you think there's a reason that we have fewer people in, in the creative arts who are prepared to talk about? <laughs> I, I think there are and possibly a number of reasons. I think that theology, popular theology, is less popular now people probably are less interested than they were. I, I don't quite know why they are, but that may be a point. And then again, um, there are so many problems which the church, um, not only the Church of England, but the Roman Catholic Church, and I think all churches probably, all denominations of Christianity are facing, but the Church of England and the Roman Church particularly facing, that people feel that they haven't particular views about, um, they're not competent to talk about, and that if they start writing about theology, these are the questions that people want addressed, because they are, they are really important questions. I think that ordinary people are, are quite interested in whether women can become bishops. They would like to know, you know, some views about that, but women feel, um, amateurs feel it's not for me to pronounce. The church is in a bit of a mess about that and the church better make up its mind what it wants. Mm -hmm. So there's not a sort of atmosphere of people doing it and being interested in it. And that means that probably these books would not be so readily published. But it is interesting. I, I mean, there may be other reasons that haven't occurred to me, but um, it certainly is not happening now. Mm. And would you say that there is less general interest in religion than there used to be? I don't, I don't think there's less interest, but I think you're right that uh, much of what is said about uh, religion and theology has been professionalized, yeah. rightly or wrongly, and it could well be for the reason you've given, that the, um, the issues are so complicated mm -hmm. and so emotive that yeah, yeah. lay people, people yeah. in the public eye, creative people in the public eye, okay. don't really want to touch them, no. but would rather stick to their last, as it were. I, we're, I, we're going to um, talk more about your novels, um, Lady James, but you've brought a passage from one of those yes. novels, which you're going to read to us. Read, yes. A passage from a it's text. It's the, the very end of the book. The very last bit. This is one of those moments when you discover to your horror that you haven't brought it with you, but I, I have brought it with me. And may I give that to you just yeah. to hold for a moment? I have noticed, by the way, that in all, nearly all my books, and maybe in all of them, I have one character who is genuinely religious. 
and uh, I, I, people say it's very difficult to write about good people, but I'm not sure that I find it so difficult. But the good person in this novel is a spinster called Miss Wharton, who helps at the church, goes off and dusts, brings in fresh flowers, gets the church ready for the first. And um, in this book, two men are murdered in the vestry, and she discovers their bodies. And this is a horrible shock for her, and upsets her, of course, desperately. And as a result of that, the church becomes it's a very, one of them was a, an ex-minister of the crown, and there was a great deal of mystery about his death. So the church became very popular, and the congregations went up, and people were always wanting to visit. And she felt that somehow it wasn't at her church, and she hadn't got a place there. Um, with the horror of the deed and the horror of what she'd seen. Anyway, this is the, the very end of the book. And the woman she meets here is, was the lover of one of the victims, and she just wanted to see where he died. But this is the end of the book. Miss Wharton took the bus to the Harrow Road and walked to the church. There was plenty for her to do, Father Barnes, refusing a period of convalescence, had been back only two days, but the number of services and the size of the congregations had increased since that article in the paper about the murder. St. Matthew's would never be the same again. She wondered how long there would be a place in it for her. This was the first time she had gone alone to the church since the murder. But in her misery and loneliness, she was hardly aware of apprehension until she tried to fit her key in the lock and found, as she had on that dreadful morning, that she couldn't get in. The door, as then, was unlocked. She pushed it open, her heart pounding, and called, Father, are you there, Father? A young woman came out of the vestry. She was an ordinary, respectable, unfrightening girl, wearing a jacket and a blue headscarf. Seeing Miss Wharton's white face, she said, I'm sorry, did I startle you? Miss Wharton managed a faint smile. It's all right. It's just that I wasn't expecting anyone. Was there anything you wanted? Father Barnes won't be here for another half hour. The girl said, no, there's nothing. I was a friend of Paul Barone. It's just that I wanted to visit the vestry, to be alone here. I wanted to see where it happened, where he died. I'm going now. Father Barnes said to return the key to the vestry, but perhaps as you're here, I could leave it with you. She held it out, and Miss Wharton took it. Then she watched as the girl went to the door. When she reached it, she turned and said, He was right, Commander Dalgrish. It's just a room, a perfectly ordinary room. There is nothing to see, nothing, nothing there. And then she was gone. Miss Wharton, still trembling, locked the outside door of the church, 
went along the passage to the grill and gazed up through the church to the red glow of the sanctuary lamp. She thought, and that too is only an ordinary lamp made of polished brass with a red glass. You can take it apart, clean it, fill it with ordinary oil. And the consecrated wafers behind the drawn curtain, what are they? Only thin, transparent discs of flour and water, which come neatly packed in little boxes, ready for Father Barnes to take them in his hands and say the words over them, which will change them into God. But they weren't really changed. God wasn't in that small recess behind the brass lamp. He wasn't anywhere in the church. Like Darren, he had gone away. Then she remembered what Father Collins had once said in a sermon when she first came to St. Matthew's. If you find that you no longer believe, act as if you still do. If you feel that you can't pray, go on saying the words. She knelt down on the hard floor, supporting herself with her hands, grasping the iron grill, and said the words with which she always began her private prayers. Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak but the word, and my soul shall be healed. That's the end of the book. Lady James, the extract you just read with prayer as the thread that doesn't break even when we feel bereft of God. Mm. Do you pray? Yes. Yes, I do, morning and night. Sometimes it's just the Book of Common Prayer, you know, light in our darkness, or the morning prayer, you know. Um, but uh, I pray quite a lot during the day. Um, they're sort of... Um, it's rather like a, a sort of snatch of conversation, really. <laughs> Um, and I will pray for people if I see somebody in great need. And sometimes one can see a mother pushing a pram with an obviously badly disabled child, and then I just say a prayer. Um, but it's just a habit I've got into. I remember the great John Arnold, who was Dean of Durham and whom you met uh, when you preached at, at Durham Cathedral. Yes. Uh, he talked about daily prayer being like listening in to a conversation between God and human beings that's gone on long before you were born and will carry on long after you've died. Yes. Which is a very interesting way to think of that constant rhythm yes. of prayer. Yes. Well, it is all over this planet. Night and day, there's somebody praying, somebody saying the Lord's Prayer. It's extraordinary, really. Lady James, in your novels, in, in the earlier novels, um, bureaucracy and bureaucratic institutions feature quite large. Did that develop from your own experience of the civil service, uh, hospital administration, the home office and so on? Well, I was very useful because I 
had all these jobs and I've used all of them in my work. But I think as a writer, I'm fascinated by men in societies, especially in a working, uh, in a, in a working situation where they are, as it were, forced to work and live together despite differences and how they cope with that. It's, um, it's much the same in committees. Committees are fascinating too. Um, all these different personalities. And people sort of assume a personality in committee. There's always the one who's rather fierce. There's always the one who's the wise old statesman. And he never speaks to the end. And by the end comes everybody's looking at saying, when is George going to utter? You know, because George will have been thinking all the time there. And there's always the one who speaks a lot of nonsense very quickly and everybody casts <laughs> their eyes up. And, and if um, there's somebody who's very fierce and he's off sick, somebody who normally is quite meek and compliant will take over the role and be very fierce. <laughs> so I'm just interested in the relation of human beings together. And of course, if you have a, a nurse training school, a forensic science laboratory, certainly an office, a publishing house. You get the clash of personalities and you get this interrelation of people. Then I think that's very fascinating to a, a novelist. And it was to Dorothy L. Sayers. I mean, if we want to know what it was like to work in an advertising office in the years between the war, we read Murder Must Advertise. It's absolutely brilliant, isn't it? Absolutely. And it could stand for any office today, the whole attitude. Your later detective novels continue that, exactly what you've just been talking about. But I wonder whether the communities in the later novels are, might be described as slightly more closed communities. Would that be fair? Yes, I think they are. It would be fair. And the last one of all, The Private Patient, that was a country house closed community. And the, the interrelations there were absolutely fascinating, I thought. Mm. I think that the murder is a kind of catalyst. And I do like the investigation. I mean, I, I think um, it's fascinating finding things out, whether it's about religion or about murder. But um, it's really uh, the, sort of, in a sense, the heart of the novel. But mm. surrounding this destructive and terrible and evil act, you have human beings with their needs, their pasts. I think the, the shadow that the early years, the shadow that childhood casts over all of us, if there is a shadow, is always there. We are probably made in our first five or six years. And that's fascinating. And landscape, and indeed seascape, beautifully described uh, and created in your writing, mm. is that the Suffolk girl in oh, you? Oh, that, that's terribly important. I think, I think setting is absolutely vital. In fact, my books usually begin with a setting, and I can visit a lonely stretch of beach or a very interesting house, perhaps with an old or a blood-stained history, a communion of people, nurse training school, forensic science laboratory, publishing house, and think this is where it's going to be. And with the last one, the private patient, I, I thought, these wonderful, wonderful manor houses in Dorset, I'm going to set 
my next book's there. And um, well, what's going to happen there? And then I had this idea that it would be a private, a private um, nursing home, well, a private little hospital, really, where very rich women would go to have their noses or their faces or their bodies changed and have this brilliant surgeon who also worked in London in the National Health Service and flew down every weekend to see his pampered private, private patients. And one of them, of course, comes in to have a scar removed, a very significant scar which goes right back to her childhood. And my readers know very well, very early on, they think she's not going to leave the clinic. That's so sad. <laughs> and she wasn't, of course. She, she should have stuck with the NHS, perhaps. <laughs> yes. No, I, I had to have her killed somewhere. <laughs> it would have been more difficult for the NHS. <laughs> Um, Lady James, we came into some beautiful uh, piano music, which was by Bach, yes. and we uh, then heard Haydn, but you're also an admirer of Mozart, and we're going to listen now to uh, an aria from Mozart's great opera, Don Giovanni, uh, Il Mio Tesoro, uh, which is speak for me to my lady and tell her, yes. tell her all we know. Yes. Thank you again, Richard and Greg. Uh, Lady James, when you attended the special service last year for the 350th anniversary of the Book of Common Prayer, the service was attended by the Prince of Wales, the Duchess of Cornwall. And I remember when the Duchess of Cornwall arrived, I told her that P.D. James was in the congregation. And she said, oh, I do love the Adam Dalgleish novels so much. And I said, oh, I'm very sorry, ma'am, but I think the last one has been written. And she said, would you please tell Lady James from me that I'd love another Adam Dalgleish novel? Um, do you take royal commands? I was so sorry I couldn't meet her. I had to go home for some reason or other, or I felt I couldn't stand up. But I would like to have done. Um, well, I, I have the place, and I have most of the plot ah, it's just the time right. and the energy so we mustn't talk too much longer because we need you to get back to that um, good, well the Duchess is here later this month at a special service so I shall will whisper you, will the you give her a kind message from me whatever is appropriate to royal duchesses yes, I don't normally speak with them <laughs> but um, say I will take what she wants and uh, since it comes from her good. I will certainly oh, well, thank you um, we're about to finish, Lady James. Um, if you were on a desert island, you'd be given your Shakespeare and the Bible. And I think we'd probably slip in a copy of the Book of Common Prayer as well. But <laughs> what other great work of literature would you want to take with you to that desert island? Well, I think I'd be torn. I've given some thought to this. Um, between two ideas. One is that this would be an opportunity to tackle something new. Uh, one of the great Russian novelists that I haven't read um, and, you know, just persevere with it. Uh, on the other hand, I feel I'm going to be lonely on this island. I want something to remind me of England. I want something that's familiar. I want something that I really love, even though I know it by heart. So I would take Emma by Jane Austen. And were you ever to be locked 
in a church overnight and could choose some fascinating person to speak to, who might that be? Well, quite frankly, it would be the local locksmith. <laughs> but anyway, and he would prove as fascinating as any man on earth. If not, well, I don't know. I think I'd have you, uh, Canon. We'd, we'd have <laughs> a good much. old talk about theology. And you well, could put me lovely. right on quite a lot of matters. Uh, thank you. Um, I want to thank uh, you for coming this evening. I want to thank Sarah for reading and leading our prayers, and Richard and Greg for performing so beautifully uh, the music for us. And I want to thank our staff uh, who've uh, worked very hard to make these evenings possible. Uh, but of course, uh, our greatest thanks are reserved for uh, our, pers our speaker this evening, the person uh, at whose feet we've sat. Um, Lady James, you are one of the giants of detective fiction. You have something of a Midas touch, be it the Adam Dalgleish novels, but also, of course, the extraordinary futuristic novel, The Children of Men, and even your highly creative foray recently into Jane Austen with Death Comes to Pemberley. I want to thank you on behalf of our congregation this evening for sprinkling some of that gold dust over us. Would you please show your appreciation for P.D. James? <laughs>